We're celebrating this morning our kickoff and uh, North Bible Church, uh, the beloved warehouse. Uh, some of you may not know that uh, we were renting this building and at one point uh, um, in 2008, the uh, real estate market uh, just completely tanked and uh, the, uh, this building was in trouble, but for whatever reason, the owners of the building didn't realize that and they were trying to raise our rent. And so we were one month uh, from the end of our lease here and we were looking all over the place, trying to figure out where uh, we were supposed to be and looking at buildings <clears throat> all around the area. Uh, and right at the end, right at that 11th hour, which is so typical, uh, the bank came to us and said, uh, you know what, we, uh, this is a bad loan, uh, people that own it, and we want you to take over the note on this building, and we'll help you own the building. And, and, but we'd had some really wise counsel in the church, some men that are in, in commercial real estate, and they'd actually advised us uh, before to get the building appraised, and we had done that, and it actually wasn't worth the note. Uh, the value at that time. And so we told the bank, yeah, you know, that would be great. We'd love that, but it's really not, doesn't e equal the value of the note anymore. And, and uh, they said, that's impossible, but we haven't had it appraised. They did. They had to reduce it another $700,000. And then the bank sold us this building, um, you know, uh, with no money down. We had no credit. They just said, if you'll take this over, we'd like it, you'd be free. We'd like you to have it. And so we bought this building. Uh, the beloved warehouse, we just decided, well, this, this is where the Lord wants us right now. And, and so we bought this building. We've been meeting here ever since. We've been kind of, uh, as we can, making improvements and, and uh, continue to do things. But this is where we worship. This is where we gather. This is the home uh, of North Bible Church. But, but this building doesn't define who we are. And this morning, what I want to talk to us about is the why. Why we do what we do uh, and, and, and why we believe what we believe and, and who we are a little bit more outside of this building, beyond the walls of this building, because there's a tendency to, to come to church and feel like that's church, but really that building just is the place that we meet. Uh, on a regular basis, but who we are is much bigger than that, much more significant and profound than that, and that's what we want to talk about this morning. So uh, if anyone were to ask you, um, what, what, what's the deal with your church? Uh, what's your church all about? I've got a couple of definitions for you. I've got a couple of things that I want to encourage you with this morning, and, and here's the first one. This is the way you can describe North Bible. It's where everyone is family, nobody is perfect, and anything is, anything is possible because of Jesus, all right? Uh, that, that this is where everyone is family, that we share the same bloodlines. If you, you know, we, are, we share the same because Christ died on the cross, because he shed his blood for us, because of him, we're family. You don't pick your family, you're born into your family, and we belong to each other. And so we believe that we're family when we come here. And, and that's the culture, that's the environment that we want to experience, is that we're part of the family of God, and when we're here together, we're family. The, the second thing is that nobody's perfect. We want to pretend sometimes. We want to act like we're perfect. We might want to fool people sometimes, but the reality is that we're all sinners saved by grace, that we all fail, uh, that, that none of us are perfect, and so we come together as a family of imperfect people believing that anything is possible because of Jesus. 
because of who Christ is, because of what Jesus has done in our lives, not because of anything that we've accomplished, not because of any place that we've arrived in our life, but because of who Jesus is. And so that's, that in a nutshell is who we are. We're a family of imperfect people who believe anything is possible because of Jesus. Now, there's another part. There's three sort of uh, our marching orders as a church. Uh, comes in three parts, and if you've been around uh, long enough, hopefully you've heard those three things, but three things that we're about, uh, three things that we believe that we want to live out, and, and those three things are this, to love God, to love one another, and to love the world. If you want to talk about the vision of North, you want to talk about who we are, uh, that, that's another way to say it, that, that we are people who want to love God, we want to love one another, and we want to love the world. And we don't just love one another, but we love one another in Christ. We don't just love the world because we love the world, but we love the world because of Jesus. So we love God, we love one another, we love the world, and that's what we want to talk about this morning is the why. Why do we believe that? Why do we live that way? And the first place that we're going to go is Matthew, the 22nd chapter, uh, verses 37 to 38, and this is what it says. Uh, and Jesus, let me give you a little background. Jesus is, is meeting with people. He's got a big group of people. And one of the religious leaders uh, uh, comes and asks him a question. And they're always trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him. Uh, and so uh, this guy knows that there's 331 laws in the Old Testament. And it's impossible to keep them all. Who, he's going to memorize all of them. And so he comes to Jesus one day and he says, which is, what's the greatest commandment? And it wasn't an honest question. It was a question to sort of try to trap Jesus. But here's what Jesus answered. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. To love your God, the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. To be all in. To love God with everything that you have. To, to love God with your thoughts, to love God in your actions, to love God in your motives, that as best you can, you want to be all in, completely devoted to him. You want God to have every part of your life. You want to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, leaving nothing out, completely committed, completely devoted to him. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say, it's easy to say, you know, yeah, I love the Lord. Yeah, I just sang that. I love the Lord. Of course I do. And, and, and you know, it's something that we can say. In fact, when my sons were in college, uh, one of the fun things at Christmas would be, they'd be they, they were away, and, and so their contest was they were, who, could bring home, who could bring home a gift at Christmas that would make mom cry, right? That's, that was the contest, right? So, so one of them would give Jenna a gift, and, and she would look at it, and it's this little sentimental whatever, you know, thing. And she'd start to tear up, and he'd look at his brothers and say, made mom cry, what'd you get her? That was the deal, right? And, and, you know, so it's easy, to, it's easy to do that, and we all play those games, we all have fun with that stuff, and we talk about that. But, but how do we really know? How do we really uh, practice loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, uh, with all our strength? And, and Jesus said this, he said, here's a second commandment. And th this really isn't, uh, this isn't really after, this is really part of. He said, I want you to love God with all that you have, and then I want you to love your neighbors yourself. Let's try that. 
You want to know what it looks like to love God with everything you have? It's loving your neighbor the same way, with the same kind of passion, the same kind of determination, the same kind of commitment. Because the truth is that we're really good at loving ourselves. I mean, that's some, we're gifted at that, right? I mean, we're practiced at that. We know how to love ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We worry about ourselves. We talk to ourselves, for goodness sakes. We do everything we can to build our self-image, to build us up. And, and he says, think about that. I want you to love other people that way. I want you to start putting other people in front of yourself. And then Jesus did this that was so profound. He said, remember I told you to love the Lord your God with everything that you have? Love your neighbors yourself? Now I'm going to raise the bar a little bit. We talk about this a lot. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Oh, man. Okay, Lord, I love you with all my heart. I've said that, Jesus, and now I want you to live it. And you know how you live it? Love one another as I've loved you. Demonstrate my love. Demonstrate your love for me to the people sitting next to you, the people sitting around you. The, the people that you interact with, the people in your church family and in the body of Christ. Love them that way. Love them with the same kind of sacrificial love because we know how Jesus loved us, don't we? That Jesus loved us so much that he gave himself for us. That God so loved the world that he gave us his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That that's how much Jesus loves us. And he says, now I want you to love each other the way I've loved you. That's the bar. That's the measurement. That's what we're heading for. That's what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all that you have, with all that you are, to love your neighbors yourself. And so when we come together as a family, we recognize that those are the two commandments that we stand on, that we want to love the Lord our God with everything that we have, and we want to love each other as Christ has loved us, but we know that we're imperfect people, so we're completely dependent on God for that strength and the ability to even do that. And, and you know, when I set the bar up there and I'm honest with myself, I know that I'm not getting anywhere close. And, and I recognize the fact that I have to continue to come back to Christ and, and, and confess that fact and, and say, Lord, I need your strength. I need more of you. I need to be close to you because I am not getting anywhere near the bar that you set. I'm not loving your people the way that you love me. Help me, Lord. And we depend on him for that strength. But when we come together as a collective group of people and say that's how we want to live our lives, that's what we want to look like, that's what we want to give ourselves to, that is a powerful, powerful idea, a powerful picture of what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus, what it means to, to belong to him. And so Jesus finishes this with, uh, at the end of his ministry, you know, there's a time after the resurrection that Jesus is with his disciples and the early church and people and, and uh, for 40 days. And then uh, he ascends into heaven uh, to be with the Father. And he says, I'm going to come back for you. Uh, but in the meantime, here's what I want you to do. And in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, we get what we call the Great Commission. Uh, we call it that. But what Jesus would have said is, this is a command for you to fulfill. 
This is another picture of what it means to, to love God with everything that you have, with your heart and with your soul and with your strength. And here's what he says. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, here's the first thing that Jesus said. Here's the big tip off. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All of it. Not part of it. Not a portion of it. Not on weekends. But all authority. That Jesus says, I have all authority. And then there's a great big word right after that that's, that's prominent in the New Testament. Whenever you see it, you know that what was just said is getting built on. He says, therefore, because I have all the authority, because I have the authority of heaven and earth, here's what I'm commanding you. Here's what I'm telling you to do. He says, I want you to go. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus said, wherever you go, make disciples. Wherever you go, make disciples. And, you know, for a lot of us, we just think, oh, man, I don't have enough information. I don't know enough stuff about Christianity. I can't answer people's questions. I can't teach anybody. That's not what I'm about. But, but let's just talk about this for a second because here, the first two criteria we've already talked about, the first two criteria in making disciples is to, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, to love your neighbors yourself or to love one another as Christ has loved us. And he says, if you want to make disciples, start there. Start with that priority. Start with that goal. Say, Lord, I want to be all in. I want to love you with everything that I have. And I want to love my, the people around me the way that you have loved me with that kind of passion, with that kind of commitment. And I want to go and I want to model that. I want to live that out with other people. Because at the end of the day, what do we want to duplicate in our lives? We want to duplicate people who are all in for Christ and who are loving each other the way Christ has loved them. If you want to talk about discipleship, let's just start there. You know, memorizing scripture really helps us as long as it drives us to loving God with all of our heart and our soul and our strength. Attending services is really important as long as it guides us, as long as it directs us to loving the Lord our God with everything that we have and, and loving each other as Christ has loved us. That's the goal. That's the purpose. If you want to know what a disciple looks like, it's a follower of Jesus who's learning to love him with everything that he has or everything that she has and is loving each other the way Christ has loved them. That's what, that's what a disciple looks like. That's what he's called us to. And so uh, he's given us that command, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them, challenging them to, to identify with Christ, but baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says, now I'm going to be with you when you go. So you're not going out alone. You're not doing this by yourself. I'll be with you always. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. In fact, I'm so committed to this that in Acts, the first chapter, he tells them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait before you go out, before you go out and make disciples. I want you to wait because I'm going to send my spirit and I'm going to give you the strength and the power to fulfill the mission that I'm calling you to. I'm going to give you everything that you need 
to fulfill the mission that I'm calling you to. And here's what he says in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That when God's Spirit comes and lives within us, dwells in us, he says, this is what is going to happen. This is what you'll be. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Go. Go in the power and the authority of Jesus. Go in the name of Jesus and be my witnesses. Be, be people who say, here is what I have seen and heard. Here's what I've experienced in Christ. Here's what Christ has done in my life, and I want to share it with you. I want you to see it acted out in my life, and I want you to hear it from my lips that this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is what Christ means to me. And he says, we'll have the power. He'll give us the power to do it. And, and this is really an interesting part because I think we have a graphic for you, but the first part is he says in Jerusalem, and that was where they were. That's where they were all gathered at this time. So he said, it's going to start right where you live. You know, and isn't that the hardest place sometimes to, to be a disciple of Jesus? Isn't that the hardest place it is sometimes to be a witness for Christ is right in your own home, right in your own backyard? He says, it's going to start here. It's going to start right where you live. And then it's going to go from there to the, to the next layer, which is Judea, the region uh, that Jerusalem is, the region that you uh, live in. It's going to go to Judea. But then he says something really radical. He says, the next layer is Samaria. And if you were reading that in the first century, that would be scandalous to you because a good practicing Jew would never step foot uh, in Samaria. You were considered unclean if you walked through Samaria. You would actually, if you needed to go from point A to point B, and Samaria was in your way, you would take three days extra just to walk around it so you wouldn't have to set foot in Samaria because they were half-breeds and, and they were the enemies. There was bloodshed between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, and so you would never do that. And Jesus is saying, look, here's what it means to be a witness. You're going to be my witness right where you live and you're going to be my witness around uh, where you live and then you're going to be my witness wherever you find yourself in places that you never thought you would go, maybe with people that you never thought you would talk to or you never thought you could relate to, but when you go there, when you find there, yourself there, I want you to make disciples. I want you to show people what it looks like to love the Lord your God with everything you have and to love each other as I've loved you. Live it out wherever you are and make disciples. And then finally, to the ends of the earth, as far as you can possibly go. You know, in, in ancient times, before they realized that the earth was was round, they would get to the end of the map and, and uh, the map uh, makers would just put at the end there, uh, you know, when they ran out of places, they would just put, there be dragons. And uh, what, what he's saying is, I, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and, and there be dragons. Go that far, wherever it takes you. Go to that place and make disciples uh, live the life that Christ would have you live. Be the model. Be the example. Uh, be my witness to places wherever you find yourself. Go and make disciples. Uh, and so they did. The early church did. They went. They received power. They went out. Um, you know, remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that Peter preached his first sermon. Troy talked about this, and 3,000 people responded. Uh, 
uh, that first Sunday, and then, uh, and then they began to meet. They were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and, and they were living that out. They were loving each other the way Christ had loved them. They were talking about Jesus. They were sharing together, and it says people were added uh, to their numbers every single day. At some point, there's roughly about 10,000 new believers living in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, they started to be persecuted. Somebody found out about them, and, and, and persecution started to happen, and they scattered, and they all left. Uh, but up until that point, uh, they had been meeting uh, near the t- temple in a place called Solomon's Portico and listening to the disciples talk about Jesus. And then they would go to homes, and they'd share meals and talk about Jesus together and talk about what they were experiencing. And when the persecution came and they all scattered, they all went to the place of the region that they lived in, to their hometown. They began talking about Jesus and the gospel of who of Jesus began to go out uh, all over the place and around the world and different languages and people started hearing about Christ and the church began to grow in ways that they never could have imagined because of persecution, because they went. And they continued to meet in homes, but even sometimes during per- in, in persecution, they would meet in caves, wherever they could meet, there was a safe place. They would meet to talk about Jesus. They would meet to pray together, to worship together. And you know, it's really interesting because we still do that, right? And, and we still meet. And so for now, for the, over 2,000 years, we've been practicing this. We've been meeting together to talk about Jesus, to, to lift him up, to encourage each other. And, it, and sometimes you'd look around and you'd think, man, we've really come a long way. But what's interesting about the church is this, that it wasn't until the 300s that somebody built the first church building. So for three, almost more than 300 years, They met in homes, they met in caves, they met wherever they could, safe places to hear about Jesus and to worship together. And it wasn't until the 300s that there was a building finally that they started to gather and the center of that building was the pulpit where someone would speak and that became the gathering place. (laughs) And they would come and stand for the whole service. (laughs) Don't you love that? Yeah, I mean, if we made you stand for the whole service, you'd be... I need an adjustment after that, you know. We'd have a mutiny on our hands. They stood. In fact, they stood for the whole service until the 1300s. For over a thousand years, the church stood for church, the whole service, uh, for all the prayers, for any worship singing, for anything that happened, for the the message, they would stand. And and, what happened is that the Bible started to get translated. The print, you know, uh, the Gutenberg Bible was uh, invented, you know, the printing press. And and so then suddenly the Bible was translated into German. It was translated into English. And and you could read the Bible and hear the Bible in your own language. The problem was in the 1300s, most people couldn't read. Uh, They were illiterate. So so what they did is is that they got their buildings and they put these wooden, benches. Now, we've got one back there, so on your way out, if you want to see how comfortable it is, just stop by the pew and sit on it for a minute. Uh, and we built these wooden benches, and people would come and sit, uh, and they, we, we would line them up so it was more like a classroom than a home now, so that, peop- so that we could read this uh, version of the Bible to them, this new version that was in English. We could read to them, and they could hear the scripture and, and begin to understand directly from the word of God uh, what was being taught. And, and so church then in the 1300s started to have pews. Amazing. And from then on, we started uh, sitting <laughs> looking at the backs of people's heads instead of looking at them in the face. 
You know, I think one of the reasons we love small groups is because uh, we don't want to lose that sense, right? Uh, that the early church looked at each other and we've kind of given that away in rows. We just sort of look at the back of people's heads. Um, and so we, we love to have both. That time that we look forward and we teach and we talk about the scripture, but also those times that we sit together and we look at each other and we talk to each other about what Christ is, is doing in our lives. And so that's what was going on in the early church at the time. And uh, uh, so they had pews in about the 1300s. Now, something interesting happened in the 800s. There was this thing invented called a pipe organ. And, um, and so suddenly music was available in, in the world and, and these great masters are writing, writing music. But, you know, it was, it was considered so secular and so worldly that it took 500 years for, for pipe organs to be commonly used in churches. Seriously. And, 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 and some of you are thinking that's impossible because I thought pipe organs, I thought that's what Jesus sang to. That we've always had pipe organs. That that's kind of, and, and I long for pipe organs again. I love pipe organs, but you know what? It took 500 years for them to be, uh, to be uh, accepted in the church because they were considered worldly and secular. And so it wasn't for, it was 500 years uh, from 1800s to about the 1300s again uh, before pipe organs were norm, were norm in the church. It took us a long time to sort of innovate to that point. Uh, and then from there, you know, in the late 1800s, we, uh, we had the light bulb. The incandescent light bulb came into being, and suddenly we didn't have to have church just Sunday mornings anymore. We could, we could meet all kinds of times. We could meet Wednesday nights for, for Bible study, and somehow Wednesday nights sort of became the sacred time, but, but it, we didn't have that for oh, more than 1,800 years. It was once the light bulb was formed, but all of a sudden now we can meet at different times in different ways, and, and so we start have, and so it changed, completely changed how we do church. Now, something else that was very interesting in the late 1800s, that somebody invented the microphone. Do you know up until that point, we had church without amplification? In the 1700s, there was a, an evangelist, a minister named George Whitfield, and George Whitfield would preach these incredible open-air revival uh, meetings uh, in England and in America. In fact, in the, in the summer of 1739, it says that in all of his uh, outdoor meetings in England, he probably preached, uh, they estimate he preached to a million people. Uh, over the course of the summer, and all of those meetings were without amplification. Uh, it, it says that, that, uh, that he preached to 80% of the American population heard George Whitfield preach in the 1700s without amplification. Ben Franklin, who became a great friend of his, went to a meeting one night and he started walking through the crowd and he finally estimated that George Whitfield was speaking to 30,000 people at one time without amplification. And George Whitfield was famous for a few things. He was famous for the fact that, that uh, he was constantly challenging people to experience a new birth in Christ. It was a radical idea. But to come to Christ and experience new birth in him, the other thing is that sometimes they said he would just stop in the middle of his sermon and weep over the love of Christ in his life and, and how much he was overwhelmed by what Christ had done in his life. And then another thing that he was known for is that often after he preached, he would, he would cough up blood because he was straining so hard to be heard and to be articulate uh, to this vast uh, numbers of people 
that it just strained him to no end. Um, I don't know if this is the reason, but he died at 56. But he did all that without amplification. And then a hundred years later, Charles Spurgeon, another famous preacher, uh, had a church in London that had 5,600 seats. And, and he would preach without amplification every Sunday uh, to this crowd and made himself heard and ma- made himself understood. And people would pack into this building. But it says that Char- Charles Spurgeon would preach for nine months. And then every summer, he would just completely take three months off just to recover. And, and there was a great story that he. He, uh, he told about himself because he was a he was a he was a large person and, and that he would put his his he said it would be like a, a white whale on an inner tube out in the sea uh, and that's where he would plant himself for three months just to recover from all that it took out of him over the nine month period of time and and then once we had microphones it took all of that pressure off but still in every age and every time we have this innovation in the church and it's not because it's not for technology's sake it's not for innovation's sake but it's so that the gospel can go out. It's so that people can hear about Jesus, so that more people can hear about Jesus. And so here's, here's our commitment. We will never have technology for the sake of technology. I mean, we have HG protectors now. We have all kinds. We have graphics. We have all kinds of things. But it's all still about Jesus. It's centered on Jesus. And if we ever felt like that technology was getting in the way of lifting up Christ and who Jesus is in our church, then we wouldn't do it. We would stop it because nothing can get in the way of who Christ is. Nothing can get in the way of the message of Jesus and our commitment to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. But innovation is important. Uh, Paul says, I'm all things to all people. When I go someplace to preach the gospel, I'm, I'm not going to assume that they know everything. I'm going to figure out what, uh, what would draw them. I'm going to figure out what they would understand. I'm going to figure out what would pull them in. And I'm going I'm to talk about that. And, and that's part of his message. That, that's part of what we do. But it's still about Jesus. It's always about him. Nothing can replace the centrality of Jesus in our worship or in our teaching or in our fellowship. It's still about Christ. And so what's the why about North? Who are we? It's a place where everyone is family, nobody is perfect, and anything is possible because of Jesus. And we believe that because of the resurrection. We believe that because Christ died and he rose again. And if the resurrection is true, then all of the rest of his promises are true. And you see, we're not defined by our past. We're, we're not defined by what we've done in our past. We've not defined, but defined by all the mistakes that we've made. We're not defined by our socioeconomic position in the world. We're not defined by anything, but what, any of those things. But what defines us is the fact that we have been saved uh, through the cross of Jesus Christ and because of the resurrection. All of those promises, all of those things are true. They're true in our lives, and they're true for the world. And so Jesus says, Go. Wherever you go, make disciples. And a disciple is going to learn how to be like the person that he's, he or she's following. Our goal is to look like Jesus, is to become more like him, to be a greater reflection of Jesus every day of our lives, to continue to, to grow in that way. And so when we say go, I know a lot of you uh, have preconceived ideas of what that looks like, right? 
go and make disciples and you know am I, am I going to hand out tracks at the end and make you take those someplace and uh you know what are we i mean what am i going to make you go to total strangers and ask you know what am i going to do and, and you guys all we all have those ideas so here's what i want you to understand that the first part of what it means to go is that we love the lord with everything that we have and we trust him we love each other as Christ has loved us, and we do this together. We do this as a family, recognizing that we're imperfect people, but we believe all of it's possible because of Jesus. Anything is possible because of Jesus, and, and we want to live that out. I was reading this uh, story about this pastor who um, had his congregation play a little quick game of Simon Says. So let's try this real quick. Um, Simon Says, touch your nose. Simon Says, don't touch your nose. Now, now, invariably, some of you don't do that. I mean, you just kind of say, Simon's not the boss of me, right? <laughs> I don't have to do that. Yeah, seriously. And, and we don't want to be told what to do. And it's okay if you don't want to be told what I tell you to do, and it's okay if you don't want to be told what Simon wants you to do. But the real question this morning is, what would Jesus have you do? Who would Jesus have you be? And another pastor was talking about this, and he said, uh, um, have, you ever, have you ever told your kids, kids, forgive me, have you ever told your kids um, to clean their room? And uh, you tell them to clean their room, and then you, you, they come back to you the next day and say, Dad, you know, uh, I've really taken this seriously, this, this command that you gave me to clean my room, and, and, and I want you to know that, that I really cherish it. And I have some friends coming over tonight, and we're going to really talk about what that means and, and how deep that is. And I think that we've translated it from the Greek. I think that we really have a deep knowledge right now of, of, of this command to clean up our room. But all the while, their room's a disaster, right? It's a wreck. Uh, and, and, and so we do this so often in the church, don't we? I mean, we, we take the commands of Jesus and we say, you know, I'm going to cherish that command. Uh, I'm going I'm to really dig in. I'm going to memorize that command. It's so important to me. We just don't do the command that Jesus gave us. And what he's calling us, he said, if you want to be my disciple, you, you do the commands. You live it out. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love one another as I've loved you. Go into the world, not as people with all the answers, but as people who love Jesus and love one another as we go together to make disciples. Love God, love one another, love the world. That's who we want to be. And here's the last promise that he gave us. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a promise. And God always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, thank you for creative, gifted people who have innovated and helped us to present the gospel for every generation, Lord. And yet help us, Lord, never to lose sight of you in the middle of our technology, the middle of our our styles and all the things that we do, Lord, but to lift you up, to keep you first. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would challenge us this morning what it would look like for us to be all in. And Lord, what it would look like for us to love each other the way that you've loved us. 
Thank you for your example. Thank you, Lord, for the remarkable love that you give us. Continually give us. We are so grateful, Lord. We are humbled by your love. And we give you praise and we give you honor and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.